Good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. If this afternoon is like last year, over 208 people will watch the Super Bowl, two-thirds of those from the United States. Are you one of them? Why? Are you a fan of either team? Are you a fan of football? Do you like nachos? There, we're getting to the bottom of it. Do you like hanging out with your friends? Do you like uh, the commercials? Yeah, they are memorable. They cost $7 million for 30 seconds, which is why the vendors this year are taking it easy. They're trying to be winsome and kind and nice so that you'll buy their stuff. Uh, but there is a, a vendor, so to speak, that uh, is already controversial, and they have since last year, 2022, spent or planned to spend $100 million creating an understanding of their message. You probably know who I'm talking about. This Sunday, they'll have this afternoon two new commercials, and it's from the campaign, He Gets us. And the he is Jesus Christ. And they say on their website that they want to create understanding and invite people to know that Jesus Christ of the Bible, which is a favorite saying of mine, but I have tended in recent years to identify this Jesus even more specifically as the Jesus of the Bible who lived our life without sin, died the death we deserve to die because of our sin, and is raised to life. So they present this Jesus, which has created controversy. And interesting, the front page of CNN this last week had an article that was about this message, and they were doing a discovery on who are the donors to He Gets Us. I mean, scandalously, they discovered that one of the organizations behind it is at Wheaton College and the Billy Graham School for Evangelism is one of the organizations behind it. And so they've picked away at who can they find out and then what's the political bent of those who are donors. And so there are critics from the political left and critics from the political right. And there are critics who would be more in the center of some of the debates that are going on today. But one of their websites, according to CNN, one of their YouTube videos, already has 122 million views. And they go on to identify who it's associated with. It's associated with evangelical churches. And to get even more scandalous, it identifies with the 1974 Lausanne Covenant, which was chaired the chief architect of the 74 Agreement was John Stott. And John Stott wrote a commentary on First John on which I have relied heavenly, or heavily, heavenly too, for a long time. One of the questions that CNN asked 
is this. Actually, they point out an important statement that I want to share with you, that in the Lausanne Covenant, they note this. They decried the idolatry of disordered sexuality. 1974. That's a really big category. And that category of disordered disordered sexuality has been around since early in the book of Genesis. And so they decry disordered sexuality and quote, according to CNN, focused heavily on the impact of the devil and sin on national cultures. Which is exactly what 1 John teaches us and describes. The last line of the CNN article wonders that if the ads about Jesus are effective, quote, in leading people to Jesus, what path will they ultimately be encouraged to take? And we find the answer to what path followers of Jesus are encouraged to take in this little book written by the Apostle John. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, looking at the last movement in chapter 2, and the first movement in chapter 3. Jesus Christ does get us. He gets us in that he knows and experiences what it's like to be fully human, but without our sin. And because he's been fully human, he is not only qualified without sin, free from sin, to die for our sin, but he also demonstrates in his earthly life what and how we can live like him a righteous life. He gives us a right and true perspective of the world and all that is in it. Jesus does get us. But the best part about the Jesus of the Bible is we get him through faith in who he is, through belief in what he's done, what God has done in and through him for us. So we get Jesus. And we get to follow Jesus. So on what path will Jesus take us? We find out in 1 John chapter 2.25 through 3.10, and the crown jewel of this passage is in chapter 3, verse 1. Here is the crown jewel. Verse 1, follow as I read. See, all right, see. We can know, we can observe, we can hear, we can experience. See what? How great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. See The love of the Father for His children. God's love is God's gift and the greatness of His love for us is beyond measure. There is nothing like it in the world. His love is unstoppable. 
It originates within him and is his willful choice to love us. So his love originates in him and it splashes on us, drenches, washes us. His love defies the vocabulary, is summed up in a person, and that's Jesus Christ. It's visible. See how great a love the Father has given to us so that we can experience this love of the Father, the love of God in Christ, his Son. His life for our life. So that Jesus does get us, but we do get him. We get his forgiveness, his mercy, his kindness, his justice. And we can know and experience this deep-seated love of God as his children. But there is a flip side to being his child, to be known by him. There is a flip side to knowing the love of God. And the flip side is also in verse 1. The world does not know him. Doesn't know him. What does that mean? Well, because the world does not know him, the world doesn't know us. As the world objects to Jesus, the world will object to those who love him in return. The world proclaims tolerance. The world announces tolerance of anything and everyone except Jesus Christ. The tolerant world in which we live is intolerant of Jesus. And... Intolerant of his children who love him, who listen to him, and who obey him. So the tolerant world will say, well, that's your belief. That's your truth. Let me tell you about my truth. That's what they used to say. Now they codify intolerance against those who profess and follow the Jesus Christ of the Bible and what he says and what we believe. So the tolerant world is intolerant of the Christ. So God's love is spilled out on the follower of Jesus and he takes us on a completely different path in a totally different direction than, than does the voice of of the world in which we live. Remember the question on CNN, if someone follows Jesus, on what path will Jesus take you if you choose to follow him? Let's find out. There are half a dozen signposts in the verses we're about to look at that tell us, that signify, that signal to us that we are on the Jesus path. The first one is in First John 2.25, we have what? It's not that we're going to get. It's not that it's around the corner. We have in Christ right here, right now, eternal life. Verse 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. That's a big promise. You see who is repeated twice, the subject, the one who gives the promise. In verse 25, 
in order to emphasize the one who promises he himself. That's God. Only God can make this promise, and whatever promise he makes, he will keep. So God promises to those who confess their faith in this crucified, risen Jesus of the Bible, he promises to us eternal life, and that's beyond the scope of our imagination. In fact, it's counterintuitive to us. Because everything that we experience in this life signals brevity. Shortness. We try to preserve it, to extend it. We try not to think about what awaits us at the end. There is common to us in our humanity what some have called an existential panic. The awareness that human existence is temporary and not for long. And so we pool our resources and we try to extend lifespans, but we still age at warp speed. And if you've not yet experienced it, the day will come if you live long enough that your life will feel like a time-lapse film that covers decades in two minutes. God's offer of life eternal intervenes in this life. It's a promise He gives right now. And the promise of eternal life that He gives right now is the possession of all who truly know Christ. The life that is to come, the life without end, the life that is eternal is not defined by the things we like best in this life. It's not as if when we experience life in the presence of God that we're going to golf better than we've ever golfed. Or we're going to catch the biggest fish on every catch. That's ludicrous. It's dismissive. In a way, it's demeaning of eternal life. The one who created what we like most about this life has something more inventive, innovative, extraordinary in store for the one who possesses eternal life. And we don't know what that is except this. Eternal life is in the presence of the risen Savior. We'll be near Him. We will know Him in a way we have never known Jesus. We will see Him, as we see in a moment, as He is, and in His presence, we'll experience not only what we have never seen in this resurrected, glorified Jesus, but for the first time in our life, There will be no sin. No sin within. No sin without. No one for us to sin against. No one to sin against us. He will have finished His creative work in us. And in His presence, there will be no 
sin. So that you and I can be assured that we have eternal life. You see on the screen in front of you, John tells us at the end of his little book, this is why I wrote this book. To these believers, 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you, that's us, may know that you have, not someday, right now, that you have eternal life. So if we confess faith in the Jesus who gets us, we get him. Right now, forever, and beyond. So that His presence is our destiny. So that if we're on the path following Jesus right now, we have eternal life. Second signpost that we are on the path with Jesus. We have the Spirit of God within us. The tolerant world that is intolerant of Jesus will use every imaginable trick to get free rent in your brain, in our brain, to disrupt us, to rattle us, to lie, to distort, to diminish, to create doubt. Do I really believe this stuff? Is Jesus real? Have you seen him? Why would I need my sins forgiven? Doubts. Lies about Jesus. That's another reason that John wrote this book. He's an apostle and he's warning them about people who are in their midst who are lying. Who say that Jesus didn't really die and was not really raised from the dead. That he's, there are other ways to know God. And by the way, let us tell you about these other ways to know, know God. And John tells us that Jesus is the way that we have eternal life. And God has given us a gift. And it's the gift of his Holy Spirit. And a part of the job of the Holy Spirit, his job description is to point to Jesus. And in opening or in pointing to Jesus Christ as to who he really is, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our mind and the eyes of our hearts so that we can know who he is. In a sense, the Holy Spirit smokes out lies against Jesus. And in smoking out lies against Jesus and those who lie against Jesus reassures us that we can, through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can know this Jesus. He alone is the Son of God. He alone makes it possible for us to be daughters and sons of God. So that John says this in 26 and 7. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There's the trickster, the deceiver, the father of lies, using human voices, human agents to deceive, to distract, to create doubt in who we are, knowing what we did. How could God ever forgive you? That's a lie. He forgives. <laughs> totally 
completely, and we'll see the extent in these verses to what God gives. And to help smoke out these deceivers, not just the lies they say about Jesus, but the people who are saying the lies. Don't listen to them. He gives us the Holy Spirit described here as the anointing. Verse 27, as for you. Here's what you have. First, you have eternal life. Secondly, you have the anointing, and it was given to us. We've received this anointing. The anointing is from Him who abides in us. Christ abides in us. We abide in Him. Jesus Christ gives us this anointing, and that's His Spirit, with this result. And don't misinterpret this. But as His anointing, you you have no need for anyone to teach you. So there are those who say, we got the Bible, we got the Spirit of God, you don't need to listen to anybody else. Well, next week... We're going to have somebody come in that I'm going to listen to. His books scatter on my bookshelf. I read his books, and when I read his books, I listen to him. He teaches me. He teaches me about who Jesus is. He teaches about who is this God of the Bible and what it looks like. God is the one who gives gifts. He gives a teaching gift. Why give a teaching gift if there's no teaching? So, what's the context? The context is, these people are lying about Jesus. You don't need anybody to teach you about Jesus. John's teaching them about Jesus. Listen to the words of the apostle and listen to the words of those who echo the apostles. Because John is an on-the-boots or boots-on-the-ground authority to Jesus. He's an apostle. He was with him. He saw him. He was an apostle in a way that authenticated the words that he says about Christ. So we have here, John writes, you know what you need to know. You have the Word of God. You have the anointing from the Spirit of God. And it goes on and says of this anointing, as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as you, He taught you, abide in Him. And this is a hard part once we've been taught. So once we have been taught about who he is, and once we have learned what he says, now do we abide? To abide is to listen to his voice, to rest in him, to find our nourishment and our sustenance in who he is. As He has forgiven us and as He loves us, so now when we abide, we love Him, we love others. John comes back again and again to the idea of abiding. In another book he wrote, the Gospel of John, John 15, you have a word picture of abiding. Jesus is the vine and we are what? The branches. And the branches that abide are attached, are connected, find their nourishment and life in Christ. And those branches thrive, and those that are not plugged in and not nourishing, they die, they're not genuine, they're not legit, they have no nourishment. And in John 15, they're cut off and burned up. And the emphasis is abide. 
that we plug our heart's ultimate desires into who he is. So that you and I have the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit teaches us that Jesus is our sustenance and strength for life so that we can abide. And to abide is not to kick back in a lazy boy. It's the opposite. It's to get up, get after it. It's active. It's not drifting with the current downstream, but an active Swimming up against the current, reaching for who he is against all of the push and pull of life circumstances that we would love him right now above all else. Third signpost, that we are on the Jesus path. And it's in verse 28. We look forward to the return of Jesus. 28, now little children, enduring term. In which throughout First John, John refers to those who, to whom he's writing as his children. And he refers to them, those whom he is writing as children of the Father. And now we have little children. This term of affection and relationship. And we have it repeated. Abide. The non-negotiable of being on the Jesus path. Abide in him. We're going to see in a little bit. That when we abide, it identifies whose children we are. And we're going to see in a little bit that when we don't abide, it reveals whose children we really are. It's stark. It's striking. It's scary, in a sense. So here he again says, abide. Why? So that when he appears, not if, (laughs) but when, so that you and I will either, as followers of Jesus, be in his presence upon our last breath on earth, or if we are alive on earth as his followers, then we will see his return and the world will note and notice there will be no unmistakable Who is that? He will return. And when he returns, it's not going to be like the way your mother used to knock on your door when you were a teenager before walking into your room. He's going to appear. And he is going to find us in motion. He already knows who we are. But he's going to know who we are and what we're doing at that moment. And there are two possible responses. The first one is so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And the second response, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. First, confidence in who? Not in us. Not in, man, I'm doing this great. Not a, hey, Jesus, look at what I've done. Not that. The confidence. If that's our confidence, it's no confidence at all. Our confidence is in Him. So this one who gave His life now, 
it returns for our life and so our confidence. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, 16, entering into the throne room with confidence. Now, who's going to just gallivant into the throne room of God? The confidence is an awareness of just how great is the love of God for us that we are His children so that in and through this Jesus we have confidence at His return. And then we have the other response and that is a shrinking away in shame. And that could mean either those who have no reason for confidence or it could mean... Those who have reason for confidence, but are not living a life consistent with their reason for confidence. Two responses. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. We'll be confident in his return. One of my favorite parts of life has been parenting young children and I walk in the door at the end of the day, and, and there is someone who will announce, Daddy's home, and then there's a stampede, and then you're overwhelmed. Pretty soon you're on the floor, and kids are jumping on you. And there is this great rejoicing and delight. And in a far greater way, there is a day in front of the believer. When we will be home with him, we will either be home with him, or we will witness his return for us. There is a, a fourth signpost that we are on the Jesus path, and it's this. We possess and practice an informed righteousness. And that's verse 29. I read, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Beginning in chapter 229, in the verses that follow, there is a tension that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And some people, as they read these words and the words that are to follow, interpret them as in, I've arrived, we're perfect, and so we can be confident in our perfection that we have fully conformed to his righteousness, and that's not what John is saying. He's already told us, if you say that you have not sinned, that you're not going to sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. He's already said that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the center of his, what John says in John chapter 1, so that the follower of Christ, we're not going to escape sin until we are fully in the presence of Jesus Christ. Then the battle with sin will be no more. But until then, we can either reflect the will and ways of the world or we can reflect the righteousness of the righteous one. So we are righteous already in Christ. The Bible teaches us that because he is righteous and he died our death, that when God looks at you as a follower of Jesus, he looks at you as his child, and he filters who you are through the person of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Jesus. So that there is a sense in which 
we are already righteous in Jesus, but there is another sense at which we are becoming more like him and reflecting more of who he is. That's part of God's new creation work that he does in and through his spirit so that as you and I say yes to him, then we begin to reflect, increasingly reflect his righteousness. A practical, for instance, that we experience on a daily basis. Ephesians 4.31 lists all these ugly grievances that we can have toward another, you know. Put aside all this junk, all the, you know, grievances that we have, the unforgiveness, the, the malice, the anger, the wrath that we have toward others. Put that away, all right? That's righteous to put away. And then we have 32. Here is the way of Jesus. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So a righteous action to another would be that we forgive others as God has forgiven us. That doesn't mean necessarily every time I bring up forgiveness, there are all these but what abouts and I think of this person and do I really have to do that for that person? It doesn't mean that I trust that person. It doesn't mean that they don't need to apologize or confess. It would be for their good to align their truth of their words with who Jesus is and what he says. That would be a righteous action by them. But you and I, we have control over what we think, what we believe, and what we say so that we can increasingly reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that Jesus informs us to who we are, the Spirit convicts us of how to be more like Christ. The Spirit strengthens us as we say yes to Him to reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that is a sign that we reflect Christ, that we're on the Jesus path, fifth. What's another sign? We, we will one day be like him. That's 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Check out the first two verses. I read again. Verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would become or we would be called the children of God and such we are. In Christ, you are. You are daughter You're a son. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, that's just a biblical way of John saying to his people, I love you. It's personal. He's speaking to them as one who wants God's best for them. Beloved, now we are children of God. That's reassuring. There is an awful lot that we don't know about what it's like to be a child of God. There is in front of us an experience as a child of God that we know very little about. When we see him, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Now, to be like him doesn't mean that we're going to become little gods. 
as some teach. To be like him means that we will be righteous as Jesus is in a place where there is no sin. And we try to fill in the details on what this life is going to be like. And I'll tell you how we know what the life is going to be like. Is don't listen to people who make up stuff. Look at the Jesus who lives stuff and who spoke truth. So that we will be like him in a way that's beyond our present understanding but conforms entirely. So Jesus didn't become a human being to conform to our lusts of the flesh. He didn't conform to our lusts of the flesh. He took on flesh to resist the flesh so that you and I, who are made of flesh and blood and have the Spirit of God, will one day be like Him. No lust of the flesh, no sin, no regrets, that we will be some way mysteriously, wonderfully like Him. And that hope that's before us, is incentive to be pure right now as He is pure and we one day will be pure. And that pureness is to resist the lusts of the flesh, the pull of this world that would draw us away from the goodness and justice and kindness and mercy of our God expressed through Christ. Verse 3 And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So as we look at who he is and the purity of who he is without sin, that becomes incentive for us to live in a way that reflects this Jesus. Last signpost for this morning, anyway that we are on the Jesus path, is in chapter 3, 4 to 10. We are forgiven of sin and set free from interrupted sin. Or set free from a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God. And this is where the tension gets greatest between 1 John 1, 8 to 10. And now, these words about sin in the life of a child of God. So there is coming a day when we will be completely like Him without sin, but we've not arrived yet. Now, there is still sin, not only in the world, but sin tempting us and our flesh and pulling and inviting and speaking words of temptation to us. And so we read these words in 1 John chapter 4, or 3, 4 and 5. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So we've already read about practicing righteousness, and that's a lifestyle of living in light of who Jesus is. And then we come to verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So verse 4 talks about a practice, a lifestyle of lawlessness, which is of active and ongoing defiance of Jesus, who He is, and His Word. It is a calloused indifference and uninterrupted practice 
of lawlessness. Lawlessness is not talking here about the Old Testament. The lawlessness is, I did it my way. I'm going to live my life like I want without regard to the person, to the word, the ways of Jesus. That means that when you and I are convicted of our sin, that is a very good sign. And it gives us now a new opportunity to confess our sin and then to account for our broken relationships with those around us. So that those who practice sin and this ingrained indifference to what God calls sin, or they redefine sin more to their liking so that they don't feel guilty about it, he calls that lawlessness. So they are intolerant of God's revealed truth. And their action is described as lawlessness. Uncomfortable with sin, Jesus came, verse 5, to take away sin. How did he do that? Two ways. He provided for the forgiveness of sin. Thus, we have 1 John in a different way of saying the same thing. So that he died for our sins, so you and I can be forgiven of sin. So he came to take away sin, and that is in part to forgive us of sin. But he also came to prevent sin. And you know one of the best things about prevention? Is we'll never know what would have happened if it were not prevented. What we would have done. And so lots of times we, in looking back on our lives, we have these regrets and and we confess our sin. But if we're followers of Jesus, we have absolutely no idea what would have happened if we had ignored his voice and ignored his word. And we don't see how he's changed us or transformed us or how in saying yes to him, we didn't sin. And we don't see the work that he's doing. And a part of encouraging one another in the community of those who love Jesus is to help people see, hey, look at what God has done in your life. And by his grace and his goodness, you're not the person you would have been otherwise. you got a different resume now. You're a child of God. So he came to take away sin to model for us what it looks like to follow sin, and then the verse that is often misunderstood and appears to be in contradiction to chapter 1, 1 to 8, is chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sees, who, who has seen him or knows him sins. Whoa, time out. The Bible is really quite clear. John is really quite clear. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's going to be a war. It's going to be a battle until we're in his presence. What he's talking about him here is a lifestyle of uninterrupted sin. A practice of blowing God off, of ignoring him, of defying him, in a sense, being the enemy of God. And from this, whether we abide in him or not, we can tell who our Father is. I hope you feel the tension of this as we read these next words. Verse 7. Little children, make no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is. If you and I have experienced this forgiveness of God and the life transformation where 
we begin this lifelong practice of saying yes to Him, even though we're going to need today, tomorrow, days ahead. We're going to need to confess. We're going to need to repent of our sin. Now we find who our Father is. In verse 8 and 9, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning... The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is the great tempter and great deceiver, and he tempts us to turn away from God, and he wants to interrupt the work of God in this world and in the life of the believer. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil so that the death he died and the life that he was raised to broke this tyranny of sins so that in and through Christ we don't have to sin even though we do and will sin. It's an option for us now. We have His power and His Spirit, the work within us, so that we can say yes to Him. And if you know Christ, you have said yes to Him even though sometimes we go ahead and we willfully sin against God. Here we have a practice of sin, a lifestyle. And it's in verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. It's in verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. When he says cannot sin, he's talking about if we know Christ, then we have the seed within us, and that seed is the Spirit of God, the anointing, and the Word of God. And what he's talking about is the one who has the Spirit of God, and the Word of God is not going to engage in a lifestyle of unconfessed, rebellious, defiant, willful sin against God. It's two paths, two lives. Light, dark. Jesus is light. Sometimes we walk in darkness, and we are of the light. We confess Christ, we go back to Him, and we follow after Him. John uses these polarizing terms here. It's a wake-up call that if we live a defiant life of rebellion against God, then our Father is of, our Father is the devil. Check it out. This is what's so disruptive. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. I mean, it's clear. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Practice righteous is not perfection. It's that you and I say yes to God and to the Spirit of God in the moment and If perhaps we say no, then we obey God right now and we confess and we repent and we turn back to Him. That's the way of righteousness. It's not freedom from sin. It's not freedom from temptation to sin. It is a practice that reflects the internal presence of Jesus. So the dumbest thing that we could do is push back against the words and the way of Jesus Christ and where we are convicted of our sin to deny it, To procrastinate, to excuse, 
Instead, the smartest practice of righteousness is right now where we are. Confess sin, repent of sin, say yes to the word, and follow after the person and the ways of Jesus Christ. And that will reveal to us who our Father is. It will also do this. It will reassure you and me that we are a child of God. Because we have experienced his viral and active work in transforming us to be more like him. We do get Jesus. If we really believe who he is as presented by God, the God, the Son, without sin, on earth showed us what it's like to live a righteous life on earth. He surrendered and submitted to the Spirit of God. Died for our unrighteousness. Raised to life so we can reflect Him right now in this place. Our destiny is with Him forever. When we say yes to Jesus, He will lead us in His path right now where we are. And that path may be very hard. It will require we deny ourselves. We may experience events and circumstances we would never choose on our own. But at the end of the day, if we are on the path of Jesus, we look back, we look ahead, we look up, we'll be glad we said yes to Christ. Will you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you that we can truly be your daughter and son in and through faith in Jesus Christ. I ask that all who are in the room confess faith in who you are and giving of your Son, Jesus, that we truly know you from the heart, that our life reflects our knowing of you, and as Jesus, you are pure, that you would continue to motivate us and to encourage us to reflect who you are in our love for the Father and our love for others for our life in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.